All right, now today we are continuing in our series on the letter to the Philippians. And last time we looked at chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, and we talked about forgetting what is behind, all those false treasures and, uh, that the world offers us, and straining towards what is ahead, to the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Keep looking ahead to Jesus at the finish line, all right? So now today we're going to share just a few thoughts on chapter 3, verses 15 through 21, and that'll kind of bring us to the end of chapter 3. Would you bow in prayer with me over the Word of God? Thank you. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, please open our hearts to understand your Word. Open our ears to hear you. Open our eyes to see what you're doing in our life. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, all right. So let's unpack this passage of Scripture together, starting in verse 15, all right? It says this, in the first half of verse 15, it says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. All right, now pause there for a second. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. Now, some of your translations there may say perfect. All of us who are perfect. But the idea behind the Greek word there, it's not perfect in the sense of being like sinless or flawless or anything like that, but rather in the sense of being mature or complete or fully grown as opposed to still being an infant. And so what he's saying here is that, you know, if you've been in Christ for a while, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while and, uh, and uh, hopefully you've been growing and maturing, you're not a spiritual infant anymore. If you have any spiritual maturity at all, you should take such a view of things. So what view? I mean, what view is he talking about? Well, He's talking about all the things that have already gone before us in this chapter. He's talking about the context, right? The idea is that we can't save ourselves, right? And that all the trophies that this world has to offer uh, are garbage compared to knowing Jesus. And that, therefore, we should forget all those things that are behind and strain towards what is ahead. Strain towards knowing Jesus more in the here and, and towards knowing him eventually one day face to face, right? All of those things, if you're mature, if you're grown up in Jesus, have that view. And then going on, he says something really interesting. Um, look at the second half of verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. If on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. On some point. You know what? I think he's saying here is like, listen, I don't want to get into all of the minutia uh, about every tiny little point here, right? Uh, uh, I don't want to get into arguments about things that don't really matter, right? Uh, I mean, no, there may be some things in life that fall under the category of what Paul called disputable matters. I mean, Paul told the Romans not to fight and quarrel over disputable matters. He told Timothy, he said, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Then he told Titus, he said, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. And he went on to say that, that those who, who, who push those types of arguments are divisive people. And then he told Timothy again about certain people who, who have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words and that result in envy and strife and malicious talk and evil suspicions and constant 
friction, right? Because so there are some issues that really just aren't worth talking about, aren't worth arguing about, and there are some issues that are important and worth striving for, right? And so about those unimportant issues, he says things like, you know, whatever you think about those things, just keep between yourself and God. You know, have you ever seen two people arguing, and as you're listening to them argue, they seem to be almost saying exactly the same thing, and yet they're arguing back and forth, and you can almost feel yourself getting stupider as you listen to their argument. Well, that's the type of thing that I think Paul has in mind here, you know, about um, uh, silly arguments, unhealthy interest in controversies, because it's not about the truth, it's just about the winning. And so I think that's what Paul is avoiding here. He says, if you think differently on some minor point, you know, I don't want to fight with you about that. God can make all of that clear to you. I'm, I'm not writing to you just to win an argument or a debate. I'm writing here to share with you the important things that will help you be everything that God wants you to be. Going on in verse 16, he says this, only let us live up to what we have already attained. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Look at that word attained for a minute. The idea here is to to live up to what you've already arrived at or already reached. It's talking about progress that you've already made on a certain road up to a certain point. And he's saying, you know, whatever point you've come to in your Christian life, keep living up to that. Don't turn back. Don't turn away, right? Don't turn aside. Keep on going. So whatever light that you have from God's word, whatever light you have from God's spirit, keep walking in that light so that you can receive more light, right? Don't turn away in the darkness, right? Because If you want more light from God's word, you can't get it by turning into darkness, right? You don't get more light by shooting out the light bulb. You can't get more light by unplugging the light, right? It's the light you have that will lead you to more light, right? If if you're in a room, think about it. If you're in a room that's dimly lit and you need a little bit more, more light, I mean, what's the first thing you do? I mean, you don't unplug the light you have. You leave that plugged in so you can look for more light, right? And so if you want more progress then on the spiritual road that you're on towards Jesus, if you, you, if you want to keep pressing forward to win the prize for which Christ has called you heavenward in Christ Jesus, then for goodness sakes, don't turn off the road. Don't drive into a spiritual dish. Don't, don't start following down some other road that leads to sin and bondage. You stay on the straight and narrow, right? It's like this last week when I went to, to, to my mother's house. I followed the the highway all the way there. And all along that route, there were signs saying, hey, get off here. There's wonderful things here on this exit. Get off this this exit over here. There's all sorts of wonderful things to do and see on this this exit. I didn't get off any of those exits because my goal was before me, down the main road, down the highway, down the straight and narrow. And so the road of faith and love that has already brought you the blessings of God and the favor of God and forgiveness and newness of life, that road will continue to lead you all the way home to the arms of Jesus. Keep living up to what you've already attained. And then going on in verse 17, he says this. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model... Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Okay, so here he's saying, follow my 
examples. You know, it was not uncommon at all for Paul to tell his readers to follow his example. And this wasn't really prideful or arrogant or boastful on Paul's part. And it's not that he was just impressed with himself or anything like that. It's just that at this time, I mean, there weren't hundreds of years of examples of people who lived the Christian life to call on. I mean, they were quite literally the first generation of Christians. And so he told them to follow his example. He told the Corinthians, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Later on in this letter, in chapter 4, he's going to tell them, you know, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And so here in this verse, he says, follow my example. But, but even more than that, look at this. He goes on and he says, just as you have us as a model. So he says us. So he's saying not just Paul, not just himself, but Timothy and Silas and Luke and his, and his entire team. Follow their example. They're living it out. Follow their example. But there's even more than that. Look, he goes on and says, just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He's saying, look for people in the church who are living out Jesus. He's saying, you know, all these things that I've been writing to you about, about living in a manner that's worthy of Christ, about tenderness and compassion, about having the same love and the same heart and the same mind, and about walking in humility and thinking of the needs of others, about forgetting what's behind and present, all of those things that he's been, been writing about. He says, keep your eyes on people who live like that. Let their lives encourage you, right? Make them your examples. I mean, how many of you can say when you first came to Christ that you had some great examples of Christian living for, for you to follow? You know, I can remember those first few years that I was walking with Jesus. You know, uh, you know I came to great faith in Christ when I was in my late teen years. And, and boy, I had some great examples to follow. You know, and I, and I, would, I would observe people. In the church, I would evaluate the fruit that was coming from their lives. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying in a judgmental way or, or anything like that, but I would kind of observe and evaluate. And uh, I, would, uh, I would watch families whose children seemed to be crushing it spiritually into their adult years. And I would wonder, you know, what was it? And, and I'd look at them, and usually God would show me some biblical principles that they were following uh, in their lives to bring these results. And, uh, and I'd, say, I'd be like, yeah, I, I want to be like that. And, uh, or I would see someone who seemed to be spiritually prospering, who had the favor of God on their lives. And I, I, I'd look at their lives and, and follow their example. And, I, and usually God would show me, well, here's some biblical principles that they're following. And I'd be like, yeah, God, I, I want to I be like that. You know, or I'd see somebody who was really going through a difficult time with lots of faith and trust in God. And I'd be like, yeah, God, give me faith like that. Keep your eyes on those who live biblically, right? God uses human examples to encourage us to faith. So be an example and seek godly examples to follow. And, and there's a reason that he's saying all this. Look at the first word of verse 18. For, right? There's a reason he wants them to follow his example, to keep his eyes on and follow the examples of those who live as they do. Going on in verse 18, for, now here's the reason, I, as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. All right, now, read that carefully. As I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
So who are these people that he's talking about? You know, a few people suggest that these might be the Judaizers that Paul mentioned at the beginning of this chapter who were teaching people that they needed more than Jesus to be saved. Well, it's probably not the Judaizers because if you look at the next verse, 19, it kind of indicates that Paul's not thinking in his mind here about people who are involved in legalism, but people who are involved in license. Then some think that it may have been immoral non-believers. You know, and that's possible in the Greek world here, Epicureanism, uh, philosophy, and living was very popular at this time. And this uh, was a very hedonistic philosophy that held that pleasure is the highest good. And this kind of fits with the excesses we see in, in verse 19. And so it's possible he's thinking of non-believers who were given over to indulgent living. But many think here, and I think that may be true and accurate, that Paul has in mind here people who are somehow connected to the church in some way who have retained their Epicurean and indulgent ideas that were common in Greece during this time. And they suppose that the cross was giving them cover for that. The cross was giving them license to, to, to do that. And it kind of makes sense in this context because he's saying, you know what? In the church, don't keep your eyes on those people. Keep your eyes on people who live according to the pattern that, that he's showing them, that live according to biblical ideas. Because there were some people, enough to bring them tears, who were connected with the church but were actually enemies of the cross of Christ. So this is why he says to imitate himself and his co-workers and those who live as they did. Focus on them rather than those who live like enemies of Christ. Right, and look how he describes these enemies of Christ in verse 19. He says, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. All right, so let's unpack that for a second, right? First, he says, their God is is their stomach. And this is a figure of speech that indicates that they were wholly given over to sensual desires. It doesn't mean that just they were given over to eating too much food or to the sin of gluttony. It means they were wholly given over to sensual desires, given over to the lust of the flesh, that is, sinful desires, and given over to the lust of the eye, which is greed and envy and the desire to have and possess everything that you see, and the, given over to the pride of life, self-seeking and self-serving. And so some think it's even possible here that, that Paul may have been aware of a line that is a fa from a famous play by Euripides that said this. It said, My flocks, which I sacrifice to no one but myself, and to this my belly, the greatest of gods, for to eat and drink each day, and to give oneself no trouble, this is the God of wise men. That was the prevailing philosophy in Greece during that day. And Paul warns them against just trying to slap Christ on top of that philosophy. And he's warning them against imitating and following those who named Christ, but were given over to all this carnality and, and worldliness. Their God is their stomach, he says. Uh, next, he says this, their glory is in their shame. And so what he's saying here is that these people were glorying in or reveling in uh, their supposed liberty, but this supposed liberty that they were glorying in was actually shameful in God's sight. Wanton sexual immorality, self-indulgence, focus on self and, and self-fulfillment. God says that these things are shameful. And what they thought was freedom and liberty 
was actually bondage to shameful things in God's sight. You know, sin enslaves you. You may think you're free, but sin enslaves you. Finally, he says that their mind is set on earthly things. It's a religion that is focused on self, whose primary question is, you know, what can God do for me in the here and now? I mean, how, how can God help me get the most pleasure out of this life? Can I tell you, there's a lot of that going around today. A lot of using God as a cover for carnality and sin. It's an earthy, worldly kind of religion that is focused on self and on pleasure. But look what Paul says as he goes on in verse 20. First part of verse 20, he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Oh, it's going to start to get good here, I think. You know, remember from the introduction to this series, we we said that Philippi was a Roman colony. And so that meant that the Romans, they would set up colonies all throughout the Roman Empire because they wanted cities dotted throughout the Roman Empire that were very loyal to Rome. And so they would set up these cities and they would uh, incentivize Roman citizens to go live in these colonies by uh, waiving taxes for them and other incentives that would get them to go live there. And it became a very pro-Roman city. It was kind of like a Rome away from Rome, if you will. And, And so these Philippians would have immediately known what it meant to live in one place but have your home in another place. To live in one place but be a citizen of another place. Many of them were that, or they knew someone like that. They lived in Philippi, but in their heart they were Romans. Well, Paul is saying the same thing here to them as Christian believers. We may live here in the world, but in our hearts we're a citizen of another place. In our hearts we are citizens of heaven. You know what? I'm proud to be a citizen of the United States of America. I'm proud of that. I'm glad for that. But you know what? That's just temporary. I mean, that's 70 or 80 or 90 years if God gives us the strength, right? But my real allegiance, my real home, my real loyalty is to heaven and to the one who is king there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where my real loyalty and my real allegiance is. Our citizenship is in heaven. But this gets even better. Look at it going on. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, one day Jesus is coming back, and it may be sooner rather than later. And he said that he will not leave us as orphans. Jesus said to the disciples, he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. After Jesus was taken up to heaven, The angel said to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you will come back in the same way that you have seen him go. Paul said it this way to the Thessalonians. He said, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, that's awesome. Can I tell you? That's encouraging. That's something to get excited about. But, but 
That's what the faithful heart longs for. But this gets even better. I mean, look at how he finishes the passage in verse 21. He says, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. No more pain, no more sickness, no more weakness, no more dying. We will be transformed and be like him. Paul described it this way to the Corinthians. He said, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 to 21, we've been looking at today. It says, all of us then, who are mature, should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. All right, as we get ready to conclude this morning, I have just one more verse I want to share with you. It's, it's chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, this verse probably should really be the last verse of chapter 3 because it's really summing up everything that Paul has been saying for the first three chapters. And he says this, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. And the idea here is that he's saying, you know, all of the stuff that I've been writing to you in these first three chapters, is his purpose in writing all of that was to show them how to stand firm in the Lord. So let's just really quickly now just review that up until now. In chapter 1, he tells us, you know, whatever happens in this life, live in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, that uh, we should stand firm in one spirit, striving for the gospel, that we should be willing to suffer for Jesus if necessary. And the way we can do that is to have the same attitude that Paul had, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, and the gain is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 2, he tells us, you know, have tenderness and compassion, 
be like-minded and be loving, be humble, uh, and think about the interest of others the way that Jesus did. He says to live our lives free of grumbling against God and others and hold out the word of life and encourage us that God is the one who's working in us, both to will and to do his good purposes. Then in chapter 3, we saw that he warns us against legalism, he warns us against license, because both of those things lead us away from genuine faith. And instead, he presents us with Jesus, who's worth far more than anything this world can offer us. Knowing him in the now and then knowing him face to face is the greatest prize that anyone can ever have or possess. And so he encourages us to forget what's behind, press towards the prize, and to follow his example and the example of godly believers because our real citizenship is in heaven. That's where our real home is. And Jesus is coming back one day to receive us to himself and take us to be with him forever. That is how you stand firm in the Lord. All right, would you all just bow with me in prayer this morning as we close this service? Oh, dear Heavenly Father, God, you see, we're, um, we're here today, but we're going to be going out into our week, God, God, and we pray that you'd help us, God, remember that, God, we're in this world, but, God, we're not of this world. God, that our real citizenship is in heaven. Our real home is with you, God. God, we pray, help us hear the call of heaven in our hearts. God, help us to eagerly look for and long for the appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, and in the meantime, may we be found faithful to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you and give you a week full of grace and his spirit. In Jesus' name.